you're not you when you're hungry. <laughs> Do you recognize that? A few years ago, uh, Snickers Candy Bar, that was their tagline on a series of commercials. So in these commercials, there would be a, a group of people, and one of them would literally not be themselves, but a different person because they were hungry. So in one of them, it's a group of guys playing football, and instead of one of the guys is, is Betty White, the, the old actress. She's in her 90s now. And the whole premise was, listen, man, you're, you, play like, you play football like Betty White when you're hungry. You need a Snickers. <laughs> Another one, there was a group of guys again, and this time, though, one of them was a cranky old man. So the premise was, you are a cranky old man when you're hungry. You need a Snickers. I think my favorite one uh, was a kind of a, an edited scene from the Brady Bunch. And it was Mr. and Mrs. Brady talking to Marsha. Only it wasn't Marsha. It was actually Danny Trejo, who is a very violent movie actor. A, kind of a scary guy, if you've seen him. And Mrs. Brady goes to Marsha. Uh, she says, Marsha, you're a little hostile when you're hungry. You need a Snickers. And she eats one. She's all better. Snickers understands, I think what we all understand, is that at times we don't act like ourselves. The Apostle Paul knew that, too. He knew that was true even for Christians, that at times we do not act like ourselves. God's made us new. He's purchased us through the work of his son by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit so that we could say that we are new creatures in Christ. But we do not always act like our new selves. If we could boil down the passage we're in this morning, Ephesians 4, 17 to 24, to just one takeaway. We could say, be your new self, not your old self. Be your new self, not your old self. If you haven't turned there yet, you could turn to Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24. You'll find it on page 978 if you're looking at the Bible in front of you. Ephesians chapter 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is God's word. So. The main command, you might spot it uh, in this passage, comes at the very beginning in verse 17. Main command, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In verses 18 and 19, Paul will give a negative reason why they shouldn't do this. He says, don't walk this way because this way is empty. And then in verses 20 to 24, he gives another big reason why they should no longer walk this way. 
He says, because the new way is full. It's kind of the overview of this passage. But I think it helps to keep in mind how this paragraph fits within the whole letter of Ephesians. Remember that we said chapters 1 to 3, Paul mainly talked about the truth of the gospel. How God has saved us, how God has made a new people in Christ. People that include even Gentiles and Jewish believers. And then in chapter 4, he shifted to talk about the application of the gospel. All right, how do we live out this truth? You remember at the beginning of this chapter, he began by discussing unity. He said, God called you to unity, so you need to live out unity. He started very, with very broad instructions and then narrowed down to get more specific. But now, beginning in verse 17, this paragraph, Paul will talk about how God called us to purity. And so we need to live out being pure or holy. He's going to start with very broad instructions Especially next week, we'll see how he narrows down to get specific. So now when we look at this main command in verse 17, don't walk this way. There are a couple observations and a couple implications that we can point out. We should observe that this command comes with the authority of the Lord. You see that how Paul prefaces this in verse 17. This I testify in the Lord. With that phrase, Paul's stressing the importance for them to listen to what he's about to say. This I say and testify in the Lord. Another observation, we should observe what Paul means by the word Gentiles. We might get confused because he's used this word before in the letter, and he's used it in a different way. Previously in the letter, he used Gentiles in in a physical sense to say to refer to people who are of non-Jewish descent. Here, though, he uses the word Gentiles spiritually. He said, these are people who are outside of the people of God. These are the people who live like verses 18 to 19 depict. Last observation we can observe from this main command. Notice that the Gentiles' way of living stems from their way of thinking. That little line, the futility of their minds. It's the concept that's really familiar to scripture, that if the root is bad, the fruit will be bad also. As Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So the main command of verse 17, don't walk this way, it implies a couple things as well. We can notice a couple of implications This command implies that God cares about how we live. That might be really obvious to you this morning, but it's worth saying. God cares about how we live. He cares about more than changing our status from dead to alive or hell to heaven. He cares about how we live after he changes that status. Remember Ephesians 2, verse 10. It says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I've probably said this before. I've used this example before, and it's, it's a hobby horse of mine, so forgive me. Um, 
but everybody criticizes Hallmark Christmas movies, right? And it's, it's, it's the classic love story. You know, most love stories culminate with the couple finally getting together, finally getting married, and that's the end. That's the end of the movie. We don't know what happens after. Now, love stories are beautiful. They're sweet. And, you know, the Lord cares even with our relationship with him, with how he has drawn us to himself. That could be a beautiful story. But he cares about how we live after that happens, too, for as beautiful as that is. He wants us to change how we live after we have come to him. So the main command of don't walk this way implies that God cares about how we live. It also implies that Christians can still walk this way of the Gentiles. Christians, this, this might be an, another newsflash to you, maybe a very obvious statement. Christians can still sin. Did you know that? <laughs> this implies that Paul thought that, it, that the Ephesian Christians needed this warning. They needed to hear this. Most of them were Gentile Christians, Gentiles physically, who lived in a very Gentile spiritually society. Temptation all around, all around them of their old life. So where do we go from here? I think we can ask the same question that any son or daughter would ask their parents when their parents tells them what to do. Why? Yeah, exactly. Why? Why should they no longer live as the Gentiles do? Well, first big reason that Paul gives is a negative one. Because their old way of life is empty. Old way of life is empty. Here we're going to zoom in on verses 18 to 19. And when we do that, we can spot the root and fruit of this former way of life. Now, I want you just to look even more specifically at verse 18. And notice the deepest explanation for their old way of life. It actually comes at the very end of the verse. So I'll read it again. They are darkened in their understanding. That's a fruit or a result. Alienated from the life of God. Another fruit or result. Because, flashers should go off, this is a root. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Do, flash, root or cause, due to their hardness of heart. At the very bottom of this way of life, the deepest root is hardness of heart. So let's work backwards here. Let's go from the root to the fruit. Work backwards through verse 18. The deepest root is hardness of heart. The way Ezekiel 36 puts it is that we have hearts of stone. Maybe you've used this expression before. Um, Hopefully it's not within the context of referring to a family member or a friend, but it's like, when I'm talking to you, it feels like I'm talking to a brick wall. (laughs) What are we communicating with that expression? We're communicating that like stone, a a brick wall, it doesn't react. It It has no capacity to listen, to be moved, to be attracted, to be delighted, to be sad. It's just a wall. Our hearts are hearts of stone. It won't respond to your speech. It cannot comprehend it. 
Just read the Gospels. Read uh, the Gospel of John, even chapter 4, for instance, when we, we see people over and over again with Jesus right in front of them who couldn't see Jesus for who he really was or what he was really saying. It's like Jesus was talking to a brick wall. Hardness of heart, the deepest root. This tells us that our deepest problem is that apart from God's gracious intervention, our hearts are hardened against him. And friends, we do this willfully. Verse 19, a little preview, will say that the Gentiles give themselves up to sin. Romans 1, another passage, says that our hardness against God is not because God hasn't given us any evidence of him. It's because that we've refused to listen. The deepest root makes the case not only that our deepest problem is that we are hardened against God, it also makes the case, as A.W. Tozer famously says, that the most important thing about us is what we think about God. Because think about it, if that's the deepest root, that from that root flows out the rest of our lives. So the root or cause at the deepest level is hardness of heart, but then we work backwards still through verse 18, and we see at the next level there is the root of ignorance, right? So if you reject God, you will be ignorant of the purpose of everything. I really like the way John Piper put, put it. Uh, he explained it like this. He said, apart from spiritual light, I can know 10,000 things, but I can't know the true meaning of anything. Not one thing. Because to know the meaning of a thing is to know why it exists. But Colossians 1.16 says, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. So until I know in my heart that every molecule in this universe exists for the sake of Jesus Christ, I don't know the final meaning of anything. I misunderstand everything until the darkness of my mind is taken away. Worked backwards still through verse 18. Now we see some of the results of these roots, some of the fruit that hangs on this tree. If you harden your heart against God, you will be alienated from the life of God. You are cut off from the one thing that could save you. The result of being alienated from the life of God is being left dead in transgressions and sin, as Paul put it in chapter 2, verse 1. Proverbs 14, 12 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, and its end is death alienated from the life of God. Working backwards still, what are the fruit from these deep roots, hardness of heart, ignorance? Another one is that we are darkened in our understanding. Later in chapter 5, Paul will tell the Ephesians that they were once darkness, but now they are light in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that Satan blinds us to the light of the gospel. Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 20, tells us that the light has appeared, but we love the darkness rather than the light. This is the fruit that results from these deep roots. Friends, I, I hate to say it, but it gets even worse than this. We look at verse 19. 
And this sort of downward spiral continues where we see just how bad this fruit and these results can get from the root cause of hardened hearts against God. It talks about calluses. I don't know if anybody had, we could have a, a callus competition. I, I, my money's between Wes and, and Ken uh, for who's got the most calluses on their hands. But calluses are, are hardened parts of your skin that cover where you used to get blisters. So this is skin that is no longer sensitive in the way that it used to be sensitive. We can have callous hearts. We can get to the point where we lose all sensitivity to sin. 1 Timothy 4 verse 2 warns us that if we ignore our consciences long enough, eventually they get seared. Another image used there, burned over. Verse 19 continues and says that we can get to the point where we show the fruit of giving up all resistance to sin. Give ourselves up over to sensuality, Paul says. Sensuality is that same word that's translated into old words like debauchery or wantonness. It means having no restraint or shame. If you could picture a stream or a river, if at one time you tried to swim against the stream, now you're just floating. It can get worse still. We can, this downward spiral, we can also show the bad fruit, not just of giving up resistance, but even an active pursuit of sin. You see that? It says greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is to the point, not just that we've given up, but that we actually crave sin. Not just that we're floating uh, in the stream, but that we're swimming along with the current of sin. This is the life of the Gentiles. This is the way Paul does not want them to walk. Now, I think it's worth adding a point of clarity or a point of nuance uh, just before we move into a little bit of application about this. I don't know about you, but when I look at verses 18 and 19, one of my reactions is, I know a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus. And I wouldn't describe a lot of those people like this. Anybody tracking with me along the same page? What gives with that? A couple things we could say. First, Paul doesn't claim that all pagans or Gentiles are this bad. In his common grace, God has restrained sin so that everyone is not as bad as they could be. At the same time, though, we have to say this, that even though everyone is not this bad, everyone who does not submit and trust to Christ has the same deepest root of a hardened heart against God. Everybody has that same deep root. And believe it or not, friends, you can have a hard heart against God and be a nice person. There are polite and seemingly innocent ways to reject God. So a few months ago, I uh, was messaging back and forth with a family member of mine, and uh, we just we got to discuss matters of faith and trying to ask her, hey, wait, where do you stand with God right now? What's the current state of your heart? And she said, God and I are on good terms. Um, 
he, she said God or some kind of higher power, I, I've always believed in, uh, that though she doesn't follow one specific religion, she picks out different things from different religions that she likes, and she tries to be the best person that she can be. It's her mindset. It's, to many people, that sounds very good. It sounds very innocent. But I tried to say, to respond in love, I said, listen, I wonder in that mindset, who's the one who's ultimately in charge, as we put it to kids? Isn't it you? Aren't you the one who chooses what's true and what's not? And not God himself? Not Jesus? Maybe innocent, maybe nice. It's a hard heart against God that rejects him. Now take a step back and look at verses 18 and 19. Do some application. Remember that this is what Paul does not want for them. Paul was trying to do what the USDA was trying to do when it required fast food restaurants to post the calorie count next to all the foods on their menus. I love a sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddle. Have you ever had one of those? Your life will change. (laughs) But boy, am I so much more hesitant to order a delicious sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddle when I see three little numbers next to that item on the menu. 560. 560 calories. And then I looked it up later, and a sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddle has over half of your daily recommended sodium. (laughs) Our old life of sin is tempting. It can seem harmless, which is why, like Paul does, or like the calorie count does, we need to know the truth about our old way of life. So in the coming weeks, we'll be able to get specific about the ways of, how the way of life, verses 18 and 19, depict specific ways they manifest themselves. So next week, we'll talk about our speech, we'll talk about lying, we'll talk about anger, we'll talk about coveting, uh, etc. But today, though, we need to realize that we need this warning. We need this warning. Even though sin is irrational, once we see the truth about it, do not underestimate its Friends, please be rigorously honest in confessing your sin to the Lord. Please ask God to expose the ways that you assert your authority, your desires, your will above his. Ask God to expose the sin that you've grown desensitized to, that you don't stand against as strongly as you once did even the sin you now actively pursue. Now, there is a way we can apply Paul's warning in verses 18 to 19 wrongly. There's a way we can apply it wrongly. We can look at the way of the Gentiles in these verses and walk away feeling very good about ourselves. I don't live like that. Elevate our own view about ourselves and in turn lose a heart for people who live like this. Paul was clear in chapter 2. The Ephesian Christians could not boast about being saved by grace. 
This was not of themselves that they lived differently. Further, to become snobby toward outsiders would work against how the Ephesian Christians came to Christ in the first place. Think about it. Somebody had to have a heart for the Ephesians that they would know Jesus so that they told the Ephesians about Jesus. They had a heart for these people who lived like this. We get verses 18 and 19 wrong. If we walk away and say, thank God I'm not like that, as the Pharisee said of the tax collector in Luke 17, or may have been 18, we must walk away and say instead, God be merciful to me, a sinner. We must share Jesus' heart to draw near to sinners, to pray that God opens the eyes of the blind, and to do this all, even as we walk differently from the way of the Gentiles. The Bible is adamant that as we are distinct from the world, it claims that God uses our distinctness, God uses our holiness, God uses our distinct love to draw the world to Christ. Now, one last bit of application. It's good news. Freedom from this futile way of life, as Paul puts it. Freedom is possible. Freedom is possible. If you have not stepped off the throne of your heart, friend, we say this in love, the road you are on will turn out meaningless. The road you are on will end with separation from God. We don't want this for you. We don't want this for anyone. We were on the same road. But the good news is, it is not too late. As we read in 1 Peter 1, by laying down his life for us, Jesus has set us free from our former, former futile manner of life. All that's required is to feel your need for him, to open up yourself to him. If you'd like to know more about what that means, find somebody afterwards. Find me, find Paul, find Bill in the back. A lot of people would love to help you with that. So just to review, recap where we've been so far in this passage. Here's Paul's presentation so far. He's saying, don't walk like this anymore. The life of rejecting God leads to ignorance, darkness, separation, just a destructive spiral. This life is empty. But he adds another reason why they shouldn't walk this way anymore. It's a positive one. Don't walk this way because the new way is full. Look at verses 20 to 21. I wonder who or what or who has brought about a new way of life for the Ephesian Christians. It's Christ. Do you see just the repetition of the name of Christ over and over again? right in these uh, verses, 20 to 21, how they learned Christ, they heard Christ, were taught in Christ. Several commentators like this, uh, liken this centrality to a school. A school where Christ is the subject, Christ is the teacher, and Christ is the context or the atmosphere where the teaching is given. Christ made the difference. Somebody I used to go to church with uh, has a blog, and uh, they wrote on one of their blogs about uh, his struggle to stay in shape and to kind of stick to a regimen, whether it's fitness or a diet. 
But he said something finally clicked for him, that he was now able to stick with his plan. It was when he became a dad. He went from trying to figure out the right rules to being motivated by a person. Because he loves his son, because he loves his wife, he wants to be with them as long as he can so he can care for them. That is what made the difference. Not a new set of rules, but a person. Christian, how much more should Christ make the difference for us? That we know the one who loved us and gave up his life for us. And now we want to live differently and live for him. Notice the contrast between verses 20 to 21 and verses 18 to 19. We see not only the difference that Christ, uh, we see not only that Christ makes the difference, but also the difference that Christ makes. We once had hearts hardened against God. Now we receive him. We were ignorant of God, but now Christ has made him known. We were separated from God, but now Christ has reconciled us to the Father. We were darkened in our understanding, but Christ has shown light in our hearts. We were selfish at our core, but now Christ is our Lord. Brothers and sisters, this must shape our teaching. To teach and to proclaim Christ is to teach and proclaim the difference that Christ makes in our lives. In the Great Commission, Jesus said to his disciples, not just to get people to respond positively to the gospel, he told them to make disciples. He told them to teach people Uh, to teach the people who believe all that he taught. Christ frees us from our old way of life, not just by dying in our place, but by living to empower us to live differently. Now, if knowing Christ makes the difference, then what does that difference look like in our lives? This is what Paul calls the truth that is in Jesus. What it looks like in our lives is to put off our old way of life and to put on our new self. And so we'll, we'll take both of those in turn. See, Paul uses one of his favorite metaphors of the Christian life here, that of clothing, like we talked about with the kids. One function of clothes is to indicate what job or what role you have. When you change jobs or you change roles, you change your clothes. And so here, it's like we've gone from the prisoner's rags to the white robes of the king, washed by Christ's blood clothed with Christ's perfect life. So to put off our old selves is to recognize the truth about our old clothes, like we were talking about in verses 18 and 19. It is to say that this is not who we are anymore, that this is our former life, not our current one. As Paul puts it in Romans 6, is to reckon yourself dead to sin, to believe that it no longer has power or rule over you. To put off our old selves, according to verse 22, is also to recognize the deceitfulness of our old lives. Do you see that at the end of that verse? The deceitfulness of sin. A lot of people have said, sin is like carbon monoxide. It's especially dangerous because we so often fail to detect it and fail to see it. There are moments in our lives when our old prison clothes can seem like the king's regalia. For instance, 
You remember when the Israelites were in the wilderness? Things got tough. What was one thing that they often said? Things got tough. Guys, let's go back to Egypt. I mean, you remember in Egypt? It was like Golden Corral there. It's all you can eat buffet anytime we want. Out here, we got this manna stuff. That's it. You know what? Yes, let's do it. Let's grab a group of guys, and we're going to head back to Egypt. You know, all the times they said something like that, they never talked about the truth of their former lives. All the times they said that, they never mentioned that they were slaves in Egypt. They only focused on the lie of the goodness of their former lives. This is what it means to put off our former way of life. To live out the truth in Jesus is to put off our old selves and to put on our new selves. If we are to put on our new selves, Paul says, we must guard our way of thinking. To be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Do you see that there? So we can return to the Israelites in the wilderness. When they were longing for Egypt to go back, what was the root of that longing? Moses summarized it in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 9. He quotes them. He says, It is because the Lord hates us that he brought us out of Egypt to destroy us. They had a wrong thought about God, and that led to their grumbling. God corrected the record in Deuteronomy 2, verse 7. It says, These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. The Israelites' wrong thought of God's care for them led to their sin of grumbling against them. Friends, our wrong thoughts about God will lead us to live like our old selves, not like our new ones. Put differently, the sin in our lives reveals some kind of wrong thought or unbelief about God. Just got to dig deep enough. We must renew the spirit of our minds and put on the new self. Our new self is none other than Christ. As Paul puts it in other places, the life we now live is by faith in the Son of God. Or even more simply in Philippians, to live is Christ. Jesus is the true image of the invisible God. He is the one who lived out perfectly what we failed to do. To be God's representatives on earth in true righteousness and holiness to reflect his character to the world. Jesus did this where we didn't. And to put on our new selves is to say that we stand in Christ alone and what he has done, not in what we have done. To put on our new selves is also to say that we abide in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says that as we look to Christ, and we do that by looking at the word, the Spirit transforms us little by little to be like Christ. As it says, from one degree of glory to another. So put off and put on. This is what it looks like uh, for Jesus to make a difference in your life. To live out the truth that is in Jesus, as Paul puts it. It means that we don't focus just on what we've left behind. We say we focus on the truth about what we left behind. That it wasn't anything good anyway. And not only do we focus on what we left behind, the truth about it, we remember what we have gained. We have gained life. 
last weekend, I had a couple friends from out of town, uh, and I took them to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. It's, it's one of those places that if you live here, you never go to, and then when you have uh, family in town, you, you go take them there. One exhibit featured Alan Page. He's a defensive tackle for the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, he's actually from Canton. Um, and he, after he retired, he became an associate justice on the Minnesota Supreme Court. Really successful guy. Uh, there was a video of him we saw, and he stressed the importance of education. To education, this is what gave me the opportunities that I had. And he stressed like, the importance of making education available to all. He said that's what gave him uh, the way out of a, of a rough neighborhood as a black kid from Canton, Ohio. We can stress a similar message and say, enroll in the school of Christ. Take Jesus' invitation and learn from him. Become his pupil. See that truth is in Jesus and the truth sets us free. And stay in this school and be who Christ died to make you to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, all to you we surrender. All to you we freely give. Make us yours forever, Lord, and fuel us to live how you want us to live. For your glory, for our good.